fireside chat, if you will. Um, if you have ever watched those old movies where they would have those fireside chats, or maybe you used to watch the PBS where they would sit by the fire in an easy chair, an armchair, and talk like family. So this morning, we, we, have, we need to have a, a talk like family um, because I want to make sure that we're caring for the church and caring for where we are as a church. And so consider this a, not a normal message, but a fireside chat. And if you're visiting here, um, come back. We normally would preach through a passage in the Bible expositorily. We'll be back in, <clears throat> pardon me, back in the book of 1 Samuel uh, next week. 1 Samuel chapter 12 is where we'll be next week. So a week and a half ago, our pastoral team, we had the privilege of taking an evaluation retreat like we get to every year. We go away and take an extended time to evaluate each other and where the church is and all the things where God's at work. And while we're away, it really helped me remember um, why we're all here and it helped me be freshly grateful for the church. We talked about a variety of ways where we see that God is at work and continues to be at work in our church. And just over the last few weeks, there are just so many different areas where God's been actively at work in his local church body. And I was reminded that, you know what, when you're going away to evaluate things, um, you often see imperfections, you see weaknesses, you see challenges. But I was reminded that in the midst of weaknesses and challenges and imperfections, we really still have a great body of believers. And we aren't a perfect church. We have a lot of warts. And over the last couple months, a lot of our warts have come out and um, been showing. But thinking through the last few weeks and taking time away, biblically defined, we are a great church. And, and when we were on retreat, we decided it would be br- good to bring to the whole church an encouragement that I brought to some of the men um, a few weeks back. We brought an encouragement to some of the men at our, our men's meeting uh, last month, and I want to openly just address some things as a church. And from time to time, you sit down with your family, you have a chat. And so this is kind of what this is this morning, an encouragement to us. Um, if we're going to be honest, we have to say there's been a few families or some families that have moved on in the last few, few weeks or so, and for different reasons, some of here have understandably been discouraged by their departure, and maybe some have begun to worry, and there must be something wrong, or maybe others are tempted to speculate that our church, there must be problems that we're not aware of, there must be things that they were seeing that we're not seeing, and um, we just want to speak directly to those things, and we want to encourage you. Um, God is not shaken, his kingdom is not shaken, nor are his purposes for this church. At times, though, and and throughout all the periods of history, throughout the book of Acts and throughout um, early church history, there are times when the church is tested, and I think we're we're going through one of those times right now. And we want to encourage you to guard against a common response. We're all going to be tempted to, to concern or weary, worry or fear or anxiety or speculation or doubt. And when we remember, wait a minute, those things are not the product of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, it's, it's the fruits of another spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to bring love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And so this morning, we want to speak frankly with you. There's there's been a few things going on, and I think that we're, we're in a season of pruning. Now, don't get discouraged whenever you're in a season of pruning. You see, in John 15, Jesus spoke directly to his disciples, and, and Jesus said that it's not the, the branches that don't bear fruit that are pruned. It's, it's the branches that do bear fruit. He says, every branch 
every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And why? That they may bear, that he may bear more fruit. So I think God's been pruning us and to make us more dependent on him, to, to humble us, to cause us to look to him, to see his face. And we believe it's for our good so that we might bear more fruit. I, I got to visit the Columbia Church plant last week. That's where I was. I was preaching down there, and I saw those very small beginnings. There was about 20 adults and 20 kids. It reminded me of the time when we went to help plant a church outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, and I remember the reasons why we went to plant a church there, and I remembered how exciting it was for all hands to be on deck and everybody to be engaged and everybody to be involved, and we got to see that in Columbia last week because they were just aware of the mission of the church and what God had called them to. And as I was there last week, I thought, you know, we, we need to recapture that. What God's called us to. You know, if we need to call this a replant, we will. Um, we need to think about replanting the church and, and, and seeing, God, what do you have in mind for us? God, what do you have in store for us? Why do we believe you've called us here at this time? You know, we believe that right now that we're under a spiritual attack, not from any people, But the scripture says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against every principality and power that would exalt itself against the name of Jesus Christ. And so we've been wrestling. We shouldn't be surprised when we encounter fiery trials. You know, the best way to defeat an army is to cause it to give up and lose the will to fight. Um, The devil schemes against the church and his church and wants to cause you to give up the will to fight. But I want this morning to be a rallying cry for us and say, No, the the church is not fragile. Um, Jesus is sustaining and building his church. And he is the one who has already fought for us. He has died for us. And he calls us to join him in the work that he's doing. You know, I was thinking through all the things where I've been aware where God's at work. The strengths in our church. He's given us a vision of being a gospel-centered church. We're gospel-centered in our mission, and we're learning what does it look like to live like disciples on mission. We're also gospel-centered in our community. We have a love for one another. Gospel-centered in our worship. We're being a people that loves God so much that it's clearly seen in our mutual affection for each other. And how we warmly welcome people, how we care for each other in countless ways every week. And so as we're thinking through things, that's probably why it's really hard when you have friends leave. It's hard because we love one another. And so in a way it's a good sign because otherwise we wouldn't care when people move on. You know, God has given us a commitment to his word and it We are rooted and grounded in his word. And I'm excited to think about all the different little Bible studies that are going on and and ladies are focusing on being women of the word in many different areas where God is working. He's growing us to be more like Jesus. He's making us a people who are dependent upon him for life. He's protected us from turning to to gimmicks and trying to be hip and trendies. And I'm, I'm thankful for that personally. He's created a culture of serving. We're a church that, if I think through it, we surpass all the the normal things that they say that the 20% only are serving. And and virtually everyone who's a member of our church serves in some way. And so I think our local church is great. I don't want to be anywhere else. 
But you know what? We have some room to grow. So this is our fireside chat. We have some room to grow. I'm encouraged, though, because the areas where we need to grow, we see, and we're, be, we're, we're growing. We're pursuing growth. You know, we haven't arrived yet. Let me say that our church is beautiful, and it's, it's the bride of Christ. It's noble. It's a beautiful, loving church. It's faithful to God's word. And our, our mission is to actively seek to be disciples of Jesus. But maybe we need to step back for a moment and say, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What does that mean here in the church? How do we, how do we look, look at that when we think about the church? In John 12, I think we have this for you in the overheads. In John 12, 25 and 26, Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? He says, he, will, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so what he's saying is, if we want to follow him, we take up our cross, we deny ourselves. If we claim to serve Jesus, we count our lives as loss. And so we have to think about, though, he says, if, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. So what does it mean to be where Jesus is? Where is the place where Jesus is? Where does Jesus continue to work? Where does Jesus lead as the head? Where is his glory revealed? Where is Jesus actively nurturing and caring Maybe we can ask it more simply, where does Jesus love and give himself up for? I want to look at a scripture in Ephesians 5. You'll turn your Bibles over to Ephesians 5, verse 25. I want to begin to answer some of these questions. Where is Jesus at work? Where does it look like we get to follow him? Where is he primarily working in and through? Look at Ephesians 5, 25. It says, Christ loved the church. Paul's telling us Christ loved what? The church. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. No one ever hated his own flesh, skipping down to verse 32, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And then he tells us why. Because we are members of his body. You know, if you think about that, the church needs sanctifying, and that's why he's at work sanctifying us. We've got spots and wrinkles, and that's why he's at work making us without spot or wrinkle. We have some blemishes, but he is working to nourish and cherish us because we are members of his body. You want to know why now I have great hope for this church? It's because I'm hoping in a great Savior who loves this church. And he's not done with this church yet. He's not done with each and every person here. I love that Alan was encouraging us to look around and to see that we are fellow people who have been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, we continue to sin, but the reality is, is he's made us righteous. He's made us new. And I'm confident that Jesus is holding us. He's sustaining us. He's 
cleansed us. He's washing us with the water of his word. And if you think about that, there is no reason to worry. He's reigning in heaven over all things for the church where he makes intercession for us. Do you know that? He holds you secure. And because we have this love of Christ, the enabling grace of God that we could never earn and we never should try to earn, but because of that, he calls us to follow him. And what does it look like to follow Jesus and serve him and where he is at work and where he loves? I want to take a look at that this morning and unpack some different ways where Jesus is loving the church in ways that we are called to love the church. But before we go any further, I want to pray. Father, we want to look up to you. God, we want to confess, Lord, that we at times lose sight of you and where you're at work. We, we confess that at times we are more aware of what we see and sometimes we're less aware that you are the great and mighty God and you are upholding all things. So God, we want to cast aside any fears. We want to cast aside any doubts. We want to cast aside any insecurities. And we want to look up to you, Jesus, the one in whom we are secure. And we want to say thank you. Thank you for loving us. And God, we want to be more aware of the fact that you have loved us and you've changed us and you've called us. And God, Lord, we want to worship you in response. So Father, I pray that you would give us fresh hope and faith and that God, you would enable us to respond to you because we are secure in you. God, give us grace to hear. Give me grace to preach. In your name we pray, amen. You know, if I told you that I loved my dog, I don't have a dog, by the way. My kids keep begging me for a dog, but I used to have a dog. And if I told you that I loved my dog, but I kept yelling at my dog and kicking my dog, you'd probably call the Humane Society on me, hopefully at least. It's because you, if you say that you love someone or something, it, it means that your words, your actions, your attitude, your behavior are loving. Ephesians tells us that Christ loved the church, that that means that his behavior towards the church, his actions towards the church, his attitude towards us, the way that Jesus speaks about us is loving. Revelation actually shows us the picture of the church, not just as the bride of Christ, as the bride of Christ, the, the wife of the lamb. Think about that for a moment. The bride of Christ, the wife of the lamb. That's, that's the church that we are a part of. So when Jesus tells us, he says, if you claim to serve me, you're going to follow me where I am. And then you think about where is Jesus primarily at work in this world? And what means does he primarily use? Well, he primarily is at work in the church and through the church. And he primarily uses the means of his bride. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we're called to follow him by loving what he loves and loving like he loves. And for us, it was just thinking through the ways that we're called to love the church like Jesus loves the church. There's, there's five ways we're going to look at where we can take up our cross and follow Jesus by loving what he loves because he loves us. And the first way that we're called to love the church that Jesus loves is by loving the church with your heart. You know, sometimes you can, you can love for the wrong reasons, 
But Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians 3. He says, in Ephesians 3.16, he says, his prayer is that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength. Why does he pray that? Because if we're not rooted and grounded in love, we won't have strength. He says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then he prays, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to what? The power at work within us, to him be the glory. And then he tells us where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. For a little while, we had a plant that we set on the windowsill in our upstairs um, hall, hall bathroom. And it's, it, it sprouted roots. We put it in a little jar of water, and it seemed to be doing well. It seemed to be growing, and the roots of this, this little jar filled up the whole jar. And, but after a while, though, the plant began to kind of get yellow, and it faded, and the color faded from there, even though it was, it was in the window and it was getting the sun. The problem is it didn't have any rich nutrients in which it was grounded and rooted. As Christians, when we encounter various trials and difficulties... We're called to turn back, to be rooted in one place that's secure, that's firm, and that's rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ. We have to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and strengthened with the power that he provides. If not, we're going to eventually fade and begin to wither. But if we focus on this great dying love of Jesus Christ, the the love of Jesus Christ that says that while we were still enemies, he died for us. That while we were dead set against him, he made us alive. That when we were actively sinning, he called us to himself. He died for us. He forgave us. He took the penalties that we deserved. If we're rooted that way, that is what will strengthen us as a church. That's what will motivate us to love the church, is the great love of Jesus Christ. You know, I've read about a physical condition that's it's called cardiomyopathy, and it, it makes the heart muscle weak. And, and it, it makes it so that the heart's not able to pump blood like it's meant to. And if it's not treated, eventually the condition, it'll cause the person to become weaker and weaker, and it can result in death. If, if church, if you become cold, if we become cold to the love of Jesus Christ, our hearts can become hard and difficult to change, but let us be warmed, warmed by the fire, by the, the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. Let's not lose our warmth, let's not grow cold, let's remember the love of Jesus Christ and return to loving him with our heart and loving his bride with our hearts and thinking through some questions for us to ask ourselves. You know, are, are you aware, am I aware of just how much God loves me? And does his love humble me and motivate me to love him and his bride? Am I aware of his love or have I lost sight of his love? And if I'm, if I'm aware of his love, it's gonna motivate me to say, God, because you've loved me when I was unworthy, I'm gonna love you in return. You know, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth a a very long letter. It wasn't the the gentlest letter. And when he wrote to the church in Corinth, they were were bragging about all their great giftedness. 
Spectacular things were happening in that church. It was jumping, it was grooving, it was jamming. That church was alive. You know, they're speaking in tongues, there was prophecy. They claimed to have all kinds of knowledge. But there was a problem that the church in Corinth wasn't loving. And Paul said, it doesn't matter how gifted or, or powerful or smart or discerning you all are. He says, if you don't have love, you're nothing. But church, we, we have the love of Jesus Christ. And, and all those other things, they'll fade. But his love will never fade. And the love that we have for him is a sustaining love. You know, church, let's abide in the love of Jesus and then walk in love by loving our brothers and sisters from the heart. That's the motivation that we're to have. We want to love each other because he's loved us. He considered us worthwhile. So let's love each other because his love for us called us, made us worthy. We don't love other people because we think they're worthy. We love other people because he's made us worthy. As we do, I think God's gonna breathe new life into his church. And I was encouraged thinking back to the church plant that I'm excited because they are focused on the love of Jesus Christ. They're in a good place. There's 20 people there. Boy, 20 people who love Jesus. Watch out, Columbia. Church, however many people we have in the room, if you are loving Jesus and you're loving each other, watch out, Greenville. I think God's gonna bring new life into his church and prayer and worship and Bible study. And then secondly, I believe God wants us to love the church with our minds. If I constantly thought about every area that I didn't like about my wife, and by the way, there's very few. But if I thought for a moment, if, if I was like that, if I was that kind of pessimistic, unkind person, and I thought, okay, all, here's all the things I don't like about Julie, that wouldn't be very healthy. If I thought, you know what, um, here's, here, I don't like the way she walks, I don't like the way she talks, I don't like the way she chews her gum, I don't like all of her little habits and things like that, and if I dwelled on those things, if I thought about those things, if I highlighted those things, if I talked about all those things, you might say I was ungrateful for the gift that she, that she is to me. And you might wonder if I really liked her very much at all. You know, if I dwelled on those things, it wouldn't lead me to love her. You know, it says, Ephesians tells us that Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. He died on the cross for his bride. He's working to purify his bride. He's nourishing it. He's cherishing it. He's sanctified us. He's cleansed us. And, he, and then he tells us the motivation that Jesus had in, in Hebrews 12 too. He says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Why? He says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus made a conscious decision to love the church. He saw what he was dying for. He saw what he was giving himself for. Loving the church with the way we begins with what we think about the church. We start to love the church with our minds. Philippians 2, 4, it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And then in verse eight, it says he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does it look like to love the church with our minds? It looks like beginning with humbly, not looking to your own interests, but looking to the interests of others. Because Jesus looks to our interests. Because he's considered the joy and he endured the cross. It means having the mindset of Christ that humbled himself, considered the church is worth giving his life for. When we love the church this way, we won't posture ourselves as superior or the only one whose opinion is valid. And when we love this way, it means considering others' interests and holding our own preferences lightly. Loving this way means seeing the church as a place to minister the needs of others in addition to having your needs met. In the letter to the Corinthians, the one thing that Paul corrects them for is their, their lack of love for each other. They've got cool programs, they've got fancy things happening, but they weren't loving. I've been encouraged that church, it's evident that you love Jesus because your love for one another excels. Keep on loving one another. Keep on loving one another, not motivated out of duty, but motivated out of delight in Christ. Motivated out of the fact that he considered us. And so we can consider others as better than ourselves. What does it look like to love the church with our minds? 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. What does bearing all things mean? It means that there are things we have to bear with. That there are things that annoy us about other people. It means that we bear with weaknesses. It means when we're offended, we make a conscious decision to love our brother or sister who's offended us and to bear all things for the sake of Jesus who bore all our sins. You know, love believing all things. What does that mean? It means to practically believe the best, to hope for the best in someone else. You know, when somebody does something, the question's for us, when somebody does something that we don't agree with, we don't like, what's our first response? You know, do you make assumptions about them? You're loving the church through your mind means not making assumptions about people. Do we believe that people are wrongly motivated or do we believe the best? Do we believe all things? Do we assume that people know when they're, what they're doing is wrong or do we assume that, you know what, they might be blind? Let's come alongside and help them. You know, the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us in this room do stupid things. Most of us in this room fail. Most in this room are weak. Most in this room have issues. You know, is there anybody here who doesn't have issues, who doesn't have problems? I think, I think we're all aware we do. Love means believing the best in other people and it means bearing the worst in other people. And it means hoping that the, the sanctifying, nurturing, cherishing love of Jesus is going to make us all complete in him. Hoping all things means hoping for the desiring for what is good for others. It means hoping for the best in somebody else. It means enduring in this kind of hope. You know, the kind of love that we're called to is it's a determined love. Because Jesus was determined to love us. Loving with our minds requires thinking of ways to consider other people and ways to carry out our love for our brothers and sisters. And then thirdly, I believe God calls us to love the church with our time. You know, I once had a job 
when I was in Vancouver for a while that it gradually sucked me away and I didn't really realize it but the demands of the job kept growing and I, I kept having more and more travel requirements and I wasn't really thinking through what was happening. I was just kind of letting it transpire. I wasn't thinking proactively. I was just doing my job. I was just stepping up to the plate and I ended up traveling at least 50% of the time away from the home and then when I was there, I was very long hours and I was you know, away from the house at 5.30 and I'd come back at 7.30 and after a couple of years doing that, I realized that I had gradually gotten to the place where I, my two-year-old at the time, Abby, I, I'd spent a couple of years traveling and I realized that, you know what, I, she doesn't really know who I am. She saw me as just as much of a stranger as she would have somebody else at church. You know, she was in bed when I got up and she was in bed shortly after I got home. And I realized, you know what, it's not loving for my family for me to be away. It's not loving for me to let that gradual creep happen in my job. And, and I need to say, wait a minute, what has God called me? What's important here? You know, I realize absence, it doesn't make the heart grow fonder, it makes the heart grow apart. And so I quit. And I got a smaller job. In the world's eyes, that might seem kind of foolish. But I quit, and I gave up a lot of responsibility and I gave up traveling and I turned down the offer of a larger salary and increases and bonus when they were trying to get me to stay because it's not worth it. And for me, I realized if I was going to love my family, I had to make some, some changes and I had to actually spend time with them. You know, church, it's easy when things get difficult to spend time away from your church family. It's, it's easy to just kind of get carried away. It's easier at times to be at work as a guy because you know what? Um, you can focus on what you're good at because it's harder at home sometimes. Sometimes, church, it's harder here at home in our church family, and so you can just let that drift happen. But if we drift away for any period of time, it makes our hearts grow apart. If I'm away from God's people, if I isolate myself, it doesn't take me very long. It takes me about a month. And I'm tempted to not see the benefits of fellowship, and I'm tempted to become even more apathetic and cold in my love for God's people, and no one here is immune to this. Let's not not let our love grow cold. All of us need to be regularly warmed by the fires of fellowship that burn brighter by spending consistent time with God's people. You know, Jesus spent time with his disciples. He loved them. He spent day in and day out for three years walking with them, living with them, loving them. They saw that he was in it for them. In Paul's epistle to the church, he, he tells them in Ephesians 5, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Why? He says, because the days are evil. We have some evil days around us. Let's, let's look carefully how we're walking, church. Let's make the best use of our time and say, let's, let's, let's look at what's most important. Let's look at where Jesus is at work. And let's spend our time there. Loving Jesus means making the best use of the time we have. It doesn't mean putting the church above everything else, but it does mean making the church the same priority that we've been given by God. He saved us, he redeemed us, he called us, and he's at work in and through the church. 
And he's called us to love him first and foremost and being the part of the church, it helps us fulfill that. If your love for God is waning, plug in, don't pull back. If you're becoming doubtful and fearful, confess that, admit that, and then say, I need to be stirred up with faith. Be around people who are gonna encourage you if you're discouraged. God's called people who are married here to to love their wives. He's called those with children to love them. And he's given the church of a means of grace that we can help each other do those things. And he's called us here to love our brothers and sisters Christ with over 40 some commands to love one another in the church. That can't happen apart from spending time with people in the church. You need to ask yourself, you know, what schedule, what, what does my schedule, what does my time say about my priorities? Am I making time to pursue all these one another commandments in the church? And the fourth way I think God wants to lead us in loving the church is by loving with our hands. You know, what I mean by loving with your hands is that loving somebody means you're going to do things for them. If I said, Julie, I really love you, I'm just not ever going to lift a finger around the house. You know, Julie, I really love you, but I'm not really going to do anything for you. She would probably say, I, you say you love me, but it sure doesn't feel that way. You know, one of the ways that I show love to my wife practically is sometimes looking to you know, wipe the table down or do the dishes or pick up around the house or pick up after myself or one of the other ways that I try to do on a regular basis because we have six kids and that's a lot of work. Um, so whenever I'm out, if I finish my day and I typically kind of reserve a meeting, I know it's going to end at the end of the day and I'll call and say, hey, I'm going to Costco for groceries. Um, I've got some things we want to get. Can you send me your list? And so I go and shop. I hate shopping. I really do. I hate grocery shopping. I do it all the time because I love my wife. And I know it's hard for her, and I can't imagine shopping with six kids, you know, two of which, you know, my four-year-old is the loudest child on the planet. I, I just can't imagine going shopping with him. And then Eva, and she is joyful but loud, and oh my goodness. Um, so I, I love my wife with my hands practically doing things for her. Church, God's at work here in our church and he, he loves us. He never stops working on our behalf. And, and one of the ways that we're called to love like him is loving in what we do. You know, 1 Peter 4, 8, he says, above all, that's a pretty lofty command. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Wait a minute. If I love somebody earnestly and actually I'm going to begin to cover up their sins, their weaknesses. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't pull back. Press in. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. You've got gifts here. I'm excited about that. We have a variety of gifts in the church. He says, as each one's received a gift, and, and by the way, each one here has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And he says, whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You know, God's glorified as we serve by the strength that he supplies. And, and you think for a moment, what does this kind of serving look like? You know, I think over the last few years, there's a show called Downton Abbey, and a lot of folks in the church like it. I'm not going to slam it like I did at the men's time. Um, 
It's a great show, apparently. And it depicts the life of the Crawley family and their cadre of servants. And in the show, this whole, this whole cadre of servants, they, they posture themselves kind of in a subservient role to the Crawleys. And they do things for them that either they don't want to do, they don't have the time to do, that they can't do for themselves. And the servants in the show, they effectively are lowering themselves for the good of the Crawley family. And so when, when Peter is writing, when he says, keep loving one another earnestly, and then he talks about serving by the strength that God supplies, it's that kind of serving and saying, you know what? I'm called to that, that lowering, that doing the things that other people don't want to do because Jesus has done for me what I never could do. And so I'm called to... to to do the things that others can't do, to be invested in the interests of others before ours like Christ did for us. In the most vivid picture that we have of Jesus serving his disciples, the one that freaked his disciples out the most, and by the way, I can imagine that. If you're sitting around at the dinner table with Jesus and you're used to only the servants washing the feet of people and yet you realize that nobody has washed anybody's feet here and Jesus suddenly gets up and then he washes the feet of his disciples, it would be a little uncomfortable. And yet Jesus tells us in John 13, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. And by the way, Jesus has washed our feet. He says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master. You know, think about what does it mean to wash somebody else's feet? It means to stoop down, to serve their needs, because Jesus has served everything that we need. You know, an application, ask yourself, how am I actively seeking to love one another earnestly and seeking to serve in the church? This is not the time to pull back. This is a, a church plant that has much going on. This is a pretty big church plant. I'm excited about the church plant. I'm excited about the next few years in this church plant. Why? Because God's given us some great folks. Look around for a moment. The people who are here love Jesus. People who are here want to be here. They love God, and God's at work. He's purifying this church. And so think about ways you can serve your fellow brothers and sisters, relying on the strength that he supplies. And the fifth way that God calls us to love the church is with our mouths. I told you earlier, if I, if I kept saying that I love my wife, and yet I told you that, you know what, these are the 16 ways I want my wife to change, you'd probably start to wonder, wouldn't you? If I said that here's the, the, the whole list, and I kept the list, and I was aware of the list, and I told you, you know what, I don't like the way she dresses, really, and I don't like the way she does her hair, you know, I don't, she, the way, boy, the way she chews her gum, when she, she kind of does it with her mouth open, that really bothers me. If I made a big deal of her weaknesses, you'd probably think, my love for her is pretty superficial. You'd probably be right. If on the other hand, what if, and let me just put this before you, what if, despite any weaknesses that she may have, and by the way, doesn't have many, but what if I loved her in a way that nurtured her, that cherished her, that supported her, that cared for her, that fed her, that provided for her, that fought for her, that encouraged her, that spoke well of her? 
What if I, I loved her in that way and I only told you the things that I thought were phenomenal about her? What if I told you that she was one of the most godly women I've ever met? Because she is. What if I told you that, that boy, she is selfless. She puts other people's needs first and the way she loves me and our kids and other people, it's impressive. What if I told you that she has joy? What if I spoke of, you, of all the things that I love about her? I think you begin to believe that I really do love my wife. You know, I told the guys, you know, when I was a kid growing up, all these your mama jokes were really popular. Um, we, we used to tell your mama jokes all the time. You know, your mama's so whatever. I won't get into them now. Um, you know, your mama's so ugly or your mama's so whatever that, um, and, and, and we used to joke around like that in the 70s because that's what everybody was doing. But after a while, we actually got in some fights because of your mama jokes, you know, because everybody knew that, wait a minute, you don't mess with your mama, especially in the South. And, um, you know, our moms had faults and she wasn't perfect, but it still kind of got you riled up. There was this, this natural desire to defend your mama, even if you knew your friend was joking. And that's a good thing. I think that's because they're, they're, God has given us this desire to to protect, to nurture, to care for. And, you know, I think in, in, in movies, there's been movies where you have these bar fights and half of them all begin with some guy saying something bad about somebody's date or somebody's wife. And, and, and then they get into this big brawl. And I think it's because we realize that it's wrong, but it's, it's also noble to defend and stop somebody who's trash-talking the love of our life. And, and let's think for a moment about how God's word refers to the church. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. The wife of the lamb. He gave himself up for the church. He's working to sanctify, to cleanse the church. He's presenting the church to himself in splendor so it might be holy and without blemish. And, and I don't like it when people speak against not only my mom, but my wife if you start saying bad things about my wife, I, I might have some words with you at least if I'm godly. It's a natural thing to, to want to do that and defend what we love. And let's be cautious before we get into assaulting and abusing and talking about the weaknesses of the bride of Christ. I don't think he looks too kindly on that the bride, of course, is not perfect. That's why he's sanctifying us. The bride, of course, has spots and wrinkles. Yeah, that's why he's, he's working to present us without spot or wrinkles. We need to be nurtured. We need to be strengthened. Yeah, that's why he's doing that. It's not that the bride of Christ is perfect. The church has flaws and weaknesses. She may even look a little homely. We might look a little homely here, okay? But she's Christ's bride. We're Christ's bride. I was affected by, by reading something a guy named Paul, Paul Maxwell wrote. I have a quote for you. Thinking about how Jesus speaks about us. And by the way, he's aware of every fault, every flaw you have, every fault and flaw that our church has. He's aware of those things and far more than you're aware of. But listen to this. He says, but Jesus does not speak words of judgment or accusation about you to the Father. Can you believe that? 
He has many things that he's aware of where, where we could be accused of, but he doesn't speak that way about us because he's, he's paid for all those things. But the reality is we still continue to sin, right? We still continue to mess up. Even though we've been forgiven of all of our sins, even though he's loved us, we continue to mess up. But here's how he speaks about us. He doesn't speak words of judgment or accusation against you to the Father. It says, in fact, the Trinity doesn't even speak neutral words. So he doesn't even just say, you know what, I'm not going to bring up all the bad. Oh my gosh, this week, Matt, he was angry again. He was short-tempered with his kids. Um, oh my gosh, he, he gave in to fear. He didn't trust me. He doesn't do those things. It says, in fact, the Trinity doesn't even speak neutral words. He doesn't just say, I'm not going to speak badly. He says, all speech between the Father and Son and Spirit about you, about the Christian, is overflowing with active love. The Spirit is praying for you. The Son is your priest. He's your cleanser. He's your advocate. He advocates for you, for me. He's the one who subdues your true enemies. That's how he speaks to us and about us. And he says, the Father loves you with the same love with which he loves the Son. Can you believe that? The Father loves each and every person here with, who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ with the same love that he loves his own Son. And he speaks of us as he speaks of his Son, with whom he is well pleased. Church, whenever we speak words of judgment or accusation or speak badly about the church, it's the opposite of how the Trinity speaks about us. Mr. Maxwell, he goes on to say, the Trinity, he ta- the Trinity talks about you behind your back. I love that. I, I, love, I love that picture. God is kind of speaking about us behind our backs, but here's the content, and I, and I love what he points us to. He says, and it would be really encouraging if you heard what they said. When they talk about your sin, when God the Father, the Son, and and the Holy Spirit talk about your sin, there's hope and a plan. There's hope and a plan for this church. When they talk about your suffering, there's help and a purpose. The question for us is, do we speak of each other like God speaks of us? If not, you know what it reveals? It It reveals that what we believe about God and how he speaks about us. It reveals our theology. It reveals our lack of love for God. When Jesus came and took on human nature, he, he effectively said, I'm going to come and I'm going to, to live down in the dirt with you. I'm going to sympathize with you in all your weaknesses. I'm going to get dirty with you. I'm going to, I'm going to live in this dirty life. Now, he didn't sin in any way, but he was, he was in the midst of a world that was just covered over in sin. And he says, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to die for you. And then he's made us united in him. You know, as, as Christians in this church, we were all once different, but now in Christ we are all the same. We've now been remade in his image. And so to speak of somebody else as different or in a bad way or inferior or less than you is to act like Jesus loves you more because somehow you're better than the people around you. And it's not seeing that everyone here who believes in Jesus has been remade in the image of Christ. 
When God speaks to us, it's always for our good. It's always with pure motives. He doesn't talk to others about us. He doesn't speculate about us. He speaks directly to us. He gives us his grace and his peace and his power and his comfort. And he says, I'm for you. If we talk about others or listen to talk about others behind their backs, and if it's anything other than encouraging and edifying, whether it's true or not, church, that's the opposite of how God always speaks about us for our good. Talking about somebody or about the church that's not directly spoken to the person involved or for the good of that person or to edify or build up the person, it's simply gossip. It's ungracious and unloving. It reveals what we believe about God and it's totally unlike the character of his speech to us. It reveals that we think that we are better or no better and it's arrogant. I have a quote for you from Paul Maxwell. He says, Gossip reflects the image of a spiritual celestial being. But it's not God. It's not a stretch to say that Satan's name is gossip. He's the accuser. Gossip's so easy to justify because it's working with the material of truth. We've got flaws, we've got warts, we've got problems, we can grow. He says, often people really are sinful and stupid, and gossip is a response to those real events. The lie of gossip isn't, I'm going to falsify a story about this person. If we have that quote or not, it's up there. There we go. Nope. The lie of gossip isn't going to falsify a story about this person, but the unspoken and assumed, I have the right to talk about anything I want with whomever I want in whatever way I want. And it comes from one's character. It comes from one's father. And then he concludes, he says, those who love God respect the dignity of his image. That's why the love of God and neighbor are inseparable. That's also why gossip about other humans who bear God's image is taken as a personal offense by God himself. So how are we to lead by loving with our mouths? Boy, let's start by praying. Let's start by praying. You know, Adam, Adam talked about this morning that the, the time before church to pray. If you're able to make that, we want you to come out and pray. Church, we need your prayers. I want your prayers. We covet your prayers. But if you can't pray before church, please pray Without ceasing is what we're called to do for the church. That's how we can love the church with their mouths. Another way we can love is, is if you have questions, bring them up to the people who can do something about them. Bring them up to Aaron or myself or advisory team members. A couple weeks ago I had, I had uh, Doug Young and, and Chris Menard stand up. And If you have ways that we need to change or grow, bring them up directly, but don't spread them and, and ask six other people, hey, what do you see? That's not helpful. We're constantly given this example by the apostles of praying without ceasing for the church. And then Paul gives us a good guideline for our speech in Ephesians 4, 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And how do you love the church? By encouraging the church, by edifying the church, by building the church up with your words. 
And the motive for all that, he says in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I have great hope for our church. I want to read to you from Colossians 1, verse 10, and we're going we're to close really with this. Or verse 11, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from domain of darkness. What a wonderful privilege that is and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That includes our church. And he's the head of the body, the church. I love that. All things hold together in him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I know this has been an unusual message for us as a church. Sometimes we need to have a fireside chat and remind ourselves what we're doing here. Why are we gathering? Why did we plant this church? Why are we replanting the church? Because God's at work. Because he's given us a great mission. Because he's given us the good news of Jesus Christ. And because he's given us the vision to to be gospel-centered, really, in everything that we do, in our mission, in our community, in our worship. And, And that's exciting that we get to be a part of that. As a church, I want to re-enlist you. I want to re-up you for the church plant. To love the church that Christ lives to make pure. That he's sanctifying. To love the church that Christ loves and died for. You know, there are so many good things going on. This week I was aware of a family who's out of work and the whole care group rallied around them to um, come up with groceries and to shop for them. I'm thinking about Leo Newman, all the different people praying for them and encouraging them. I'm thinking about people moving this week. This is just all this week. People moving this week and people serving them. I, I thought about the men who were out at the church property. And by the way, thank you to all those men. They were out at the church property this past week. I'm clearing it, getting ready for us to sell. They're serving each other, and they were enjoying some good fellowship. We had, I think we had guys, uh, I think Matt, was, Matt Hall was out there, and um, Greg Jansen, and Aaron Campbell, Danny Roberts, and um, Andrew, and uh, Robert Alberti, and, and so many guys were serving the church, and thinking about how there are so many ways that we can lose sight of where God's at work, but there's hope for the church, because He's purifying us. He's sanctifying us. He's washing us with the water of his word. You know what? why else there's hope? It says that Jesus says, I will build my church. And what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, the gates of hell is that place of death. And Jesus says, I'm building my church. And the church 
is going to assault the place of death to bring the life of Jesus Christ. That's why I have hope because we have the life of Jesus Christ that we get to proclaim to all the gates of hell around us. You know, think about all these different places where God's at work. I'm encouraged that in the midst of things, you know, we're able to have enough funds to buy a building and, and we're in the process of that. By the way, we're waiting to hear back from them um, still. We're, we're, we're moving forward in some other areas too. There's been some, some wonderful changes in Grace Kids in just the last few weeks and, and thinking about how Tyler Menard has stepped up and, and is serving there and so many people are, are catching a, a new faith and vision for, for serving our kids by preaching them the gospel and raising them up and training them up in the way they should go. It's such an important part of things thinking about the youth and, and how I'm excited about the discipleship groups that are happening and that we get to have this Friday night. God's at work. Let's not lose sight of that. You know, no matter how many people you might be aware of, um, God's at work. He's given us a hope that's greater than what we see. That's the hope in him. Jesus is building this church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Amen? Well, let's pray, and let's get to work. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you've saved us and you've called us to your purposes. God, I pray that you give each and every person here faith for where you're currently at work, faith for where you're gonna be at work, and God, I pray that we would not grow weary in doing good, Lord, but I pray that wherever we've, our hands have become weak and our knees have begun to droop, Lord, I, I pray that we would strengthen our weary hands, that we would stand up and strengthen our drooping knees. God, I pray that so that none of us might be put out of joint, Lord, but so, so we might be built up in you. God, I, I'm, I, I'm so glad you've called us here and our family here, and I'm so glad for these people in the church. God, I pray that you might strengthen us and encourage us. In your name we pray, amen. Well,